you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, twitchy and twisted. Stocks whipsawing on seemingly every headline from regulators here and around the world. Banks, airlines, and industrials lower again today. Steve Eisman a Big Short fame will join us tonight. He'll tell us why you don't want to be a hero in this market. Plus, crude collapsing, WTI falling over 4% today, closing below 70 bucks a barrel for the first time since December 2021. How big of a warning side is this for the global economy? And later, flight to FANG. While regional banks have plunged, the titans of tech have held steady. Is now the time to put your money in the first bank of Cupertino? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. We start off with the great rate route. Yields on two-year treasuries plunging as much as 50 basis points today and hitting their lowest level since mid-September. They closed well off the lows, but still a far cry from the 5% plus they were just a week ago. The move coming after yesterday's regional bank rebound returned, uh, turned back into a regional bank route. The KRE Bank ETF notching its seventh down day in eight sessions, closing just off its lowest level since November 2020. Shares of Credit Suisse falling to an all-time low, even as Swiss regulators said they'd step in to save the bank if needed. But it wasn't pain everywhere. Equity markets closed well off the lows of the day, with the Nasdaq even ending the day in the green. The Dow erasing a 725-point drop to close down less than a percent. So what should investors listen to right now, the bond market or the stock market? And I feel like we ask this question constantly. But today in particular, Tim, when we woke up this morning, we saw the headlines, we saw the futures down sharply. It didn't feel very good. It was surprising how the day ended. It was the Ides of March for sure this morning. And if you looked at where bond yields had gone and if you look at the VIX and you know, the three-day move on the VIX means maybe we're moving into a new area. We're going to get into where uh, mega cap tech stocks are outperforming. I'll, I'll just say this. If investors think that there's another Fed put in the works here because we're bailing out what seems like, and again, this is not really the story, but the headlines could say you're bailing out Silicon Valley tech bros. Um, that's just not the case. And it's probably not the case there. I think we're talking more broadly about depositors. But in a world where bank costs are going higher, bank lending is tightening, you have dynamics that I don't think we had forecasted into uh, the market. Lower rates are great for equities and for higher duration stocks. Uh, I think that's just in the short run. And, and to me, I think you have to be really careful about assuming that lower rates are great for you, even if we're debating what's going on on the Fed funds curve. I mean, you don't see these sorts of moves in rates, Guy, without there's something being wrong, I would think, in the market. I'm, I'm sort of in your head when I set you up with that. Yeah. Yeah, you typically reside. There's a lot of room up there, so you have space to sort of move around. There's a little you know, echo. The CME, group has, the CME group has an instrument called the TVL, and that measures bond volatility. And we're at levels last seen in March of 2020, and I think we all recall what was happening there. And, you know, last night I was complimenting the Fed being steadfast in their want to combat inflation, and I, I agree with them. But the thing that I'll push back on them, and you know I'm not a fan, is – so much for stable markets, because when you see bond moves like this, I mean, it's unprecedented again. Well, it is precedented because we've seen it before, but it's it should not trade the way it's trading. And as I've said a number of times, it just sort of is the precursor to equity volatility. And I think that's probably why Steve Eisman will make some of the comments he makes. 
You also have to remember, though, there's so many things that are going on right now in bonds. The Fed opening up that window to pay par for bonds. So the market's been caving. Financials have been caving. So I don't know which is right because they're all correlated to a certain extent. So we have to wait to see how it plays out before you make up your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In terms of what was going on in Europe and how it affects or doesn't affect banking here, Karen, I mean, we have to remember mm-hmm. yesterday we saw a bounce back in a lot of the regional banks. So what we're seeing here right. today was sort of a give back of that, which yeah. some people called sort of a flimsy rally to begin with. Right, yeah. Right Tim specifically time, said that right. that was hardly a bounce back yesterday. Not you, <laughs> not you oh, okay. the, yeah, rally, the, the rally. The rally was flimsy. But it was interesting. I mean, there was, as, as Steve said, there's a confluence of things that caused the bonds to rally. The mm-hmm. Credit Suisse situation, flight to quality, right? There's that. So bonds rally. And then you also have... Um, the depositors leaving banks and maybe just buying treasuries directly. Mm-hmm. There's that. There is, is the Fed going to stop raising? There's that. And then is there a recession? So all of those together caused quite a big rally in the last couple of days. Some of them will subside, I, I, I think. But um, this kind of volatility is, is just crazy. How about, how about the hedges that people have had in bonds yeah. against their equity portfolios? So if you have hedges on with bonds or you have a certain amount allocated to bonds, certain amount allocated to equities, that equity number goes down and you have to put it someplace and now you're, you're trying to be safer with your money, then you're buying more bonds. So the whole thing becomes a vicious spiral until somebody figures out what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of though, what we're witnessing with the European banks and the yep. meltdown there, though, that seemed to sort of reach a new level in today's session. And so, I'm, I'm, you know, we've all we've all been here talking about past financial right. crises, crises, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, is, is there anything that reminds you of 08? Does it, you know, when you hear Credit Suisse is in trouble, then you think Deutsche Bank, and you you start remembering those times. There's a muscle memory to that. Well, if you look at Credit Suisse, I mean, they've had issues trying to raise capital here. They, this has been a slow bleed on yeah. Credit Suisse for, for months and months. And, and anytime there's, there's pressure in the European banking sector, look straight at Deutsche Bank because there's a lot of concern about structured products and the size of the balance sheet and where the exposure really is. Um, I think some banks uh, were thrown out with the bathwater. I actually am long UBS. I think UBS, which is largely an asset manager these days, has de-risked their business, gives back 13% of capital to shareholders every year. Um, I I think there's a different story there, but there's no question the European banking story is different than the banking story here. And if you think about most of those banks, they are quasi-sovereign banks. And so in some sense, one of the things that we're all debating here is whether uh, deposit and deposit guarantees are part of what the U.S. banking system should be. There's also no question that at some point, if people start to worry in Europe about their banking system, we're going to see a lot more assets over in our money center banks. It's interesting why the Swiss government waited. Why wait? Why wait? What was that discussion about? Having seen, you know, what happens here when you wait, that if if you're going to end up doing anything, you're better off doing it earlier rather than later. And so I was sort of surprised they just let it kind of ride for a while. Haven't they had years to do this? I mean, this is an ongoing, (laughs) this is a train wreck in slow motion. This is not something that snuck up on anybody. So this should have been handled way before, and I I get what happened, what transpired today, but this should have been handled, backstopped a long time ago, if that's where they were going to go ultimately anyway. There's a certain element though, at this moment in time when things are so sort of chaotic, things are moving a lot very quickly, there's a lot that we still don't know. We don't know what we don't know, Guy. 
And that's sort of a very uncomfortable position, particularly when you're talking about assets on bank balance sheets, things that had gone undetected here in the United States by regulators, by credit rating agencies, yeah. by Wall Street analysts, by the bank itself, by depositors. The list goes on and on. Um, so this whole yeah. notion of we don't know what we don't know, that's frightening. I think we as a society, I mean, you know, as we as citizens, we want to try to get bad news in the rearview mirror as quickly as we can. I think we're all guilty. I know I'm guilty of it, right? But, I mean, you can go back to look at Blackstone and say, wait a second, you know, maybe Blackstone was sort of the precursor of some of the things that we're seeing now. And I'm not saying Blackstone's in trouble. It's not my point. But, you know, you see things like that and you start to connect the dots. And in terms of the Swiss National Bank, I mean, let's just call it what they are. I mean, they're as bank as much as I'm a bank. They're probably one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. I think right now, currently, they have about $139 billion, with a B, dollars worth of U.S. equities on their balance sheet. I'm not really sure what their mandate is, but good luck with that. So the whole world's been financialized to a certain extent. And to your point, we don't know. You're right, 100% right. And to think that, again, Credit Suisse is going to be the last? No, it's not. I mean, you throw Deutsche Bank on that list and it's going to cascade from there. Well, for more on these historic rate swings, let's bring in the man who's watching every single move, CNBC's Rick Santelli coming to us live from the CME. Rick, we were talking about the, uh, the, the tremendous volatility across the curve today. I mean, it was just extraordinary. It really was. And whether you, uh, there's a variety of ways to monitor the volatility in treasuries. Guy brought out one. Uh, we could look at the moves index. Uh, that's the highest close since 2009. If you look at the spreads, you look at every facet of what's going on with regard to treasuries. And yes, it's in hyperdrive. But I think the most interesting aspect is that we need to mention this. It's not only us. Whether you look at Boons, whether you look at R10s, whether you look at Gilts, this type of move is going to happen in a very highly correlated fashion for a while. And that's something to deal with both from a volatility and from a hedging standpoint. I also think this Fed fund futures game, it really is kind of humorous to me, okay? Because if you put Fed funds on top of a, a two-year note on prices, so they're both in prices, they're on top of each other. If you put it against the VIX, they're on top of each other. If you put it on top of 10-year note yields, they're exactly inverse. My point here is, is that when things get crazy, Fed fund future traders aren't really telling you what the Fed's going to do. They're telling you what short rates are doing. And that's all. And I'm not saying short rates don't give you every bit as good of a vision into Fed thoughts. It's just not as easy to calculate. And the other big issue is, and I know that several on your panel there are talking about maybe this is over, uh, banks are different. All I know is, is that I had a Drexel bankruptcy lawyer tell me in 1990 that it was the most solvent bankrupt company he had ever seen. And the moral of that story is it's all about liquidity, okay? Whether it's Signature Bank, uh, whether it's SVB Bank. So it's very difficult sometimes to know if this is going to be contagious because we just don't really know if regulators have done their job thoroughly and when we're now getting full credit to every damaged mortgage-backed security and the Fed standing up for it, that creates a whole nother chapter down the road that the Europeans are going to have to deal with because they did the same thing to the central banks of the South. Mm. Um, it will be interesting to see what the ECB does, decides to do tomorrow, Rick, um, you know, ahead of the Fed. 
in terms, though, in terms of what we've seen today, so you're saying that the Fed funds futures just throw it out the garbage, it's bunk. The notion that the terminal rate has come down by one plus percent in, in a matter of days, that's meaningless to you? Or does it provide some guidance? Because it at least provides an, a window into, into market psychology, no? Well, you know what? It's an easy way to look at a lot of different markets in one easy kind of fashion and boil it down into percentages. And everybody likes it. And I think simple can be good. But when it gets volatile, it's going to have just the same mean reversion tendencies as a one-year bill or a three-month bill or a two-year note for the most part. And I think that that's all I'm referring to is that there's no magic there. Hanging your hat on what Fed Fund futures say yesterday or today, well, they may say something different tomorrow, just like a two-year note yield might not be anywhere near 388 tomorrow. Yep. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli. Let's go more on the potential impacts of bank fallout uh, with Jens Nordvig, the founder and CEO of Exante Data. Uh, Jens, great to have you with us. Are we witnessing a, a banking crisis unfold either here in the United States or in Europe? Well, so it started with one bank, then we had two banks, and now we have three. And uh, I think it's very important to think about what type of bank it is that we are looking at, right? So we had regional banks in the U.S. That's where we had the two U.S. examples, right? But the news today is around uh, one of the biggest global investment banks. So we're in a total different category of, of banking institution here, right? In order to contain this, we need to have it not spread, right? So we need to watch extremely carefully whether this is something that is contaminating all the big investment banks, right? So we were watching it on the screen, right? Big French banks were down 10, 12% today at some point. That's not what you want to see. If we look at CDS, i.e. sort of the, the what's going on in credit, it was a little bit less dramatic. But we're just on the cusp of this to looking into sort of a more systemic crisis, right? That's why people are getting memories from 2008 today. And that's what is making it so dramatic. Yeah, we're showing the CDS on the individual banks uh, skyrocketing, particularly for Credit Suisse. Um, but in terms of, of saying things like, well, we have to make sure it doesn't spread. And I mean, that's that's fine. But we don't really know what it is that will spread. And so therefore, what is the mechanism by which it will spread? There's a lot we don't know yet, Jens, for us to sort of digest. So it's easier to shoot first and ask questions later, which is sort of what we're seeing unfold in the markets. Or are there things that you are looking for in particular to tip you off? So whether or not this is truly uh, some sort of systemic crisis that we're facing in Europe. And, and could that yeah, so then translate or, or, or come to our shores? Yeah, so... Um uh, I, I think one indicator that we've learned to look at is um, what is essentially the price of dollar funding for global players, right? If there is a shortage of dollars in the market, like we had in 2008, the price of dollar funding goes up dramatically, and that scares a lot of people, right? Because a lot of people have dollar assets that they need to fund. If they can't fund them, they're in serious trouble. So we started to see some movement today. It's not uh, as much as it was in the COVID shock. It's certainly not as much as it was in 2008. But that is what is really scaring people. That's why the euro traded down almost 2% today, right? That is the sort of first signal that is global systemic tension. So we need to watch those indicators incredibly carefully. So on the one hand, we have that. On the other hand, I look at the CDS for BNP uh, and all the big uh, European banks, right? And it moved, but it was not super dramatic. So we're just at the cusp. We need to be very pragmatic. And the ECB has a very difficult decision tomorrow. Do they do 50 basis points and ignore the financial stability concerns? Or, or do they say, okay, 
we actually have to prioritize the financial stability concerns ahead of the inflation. So very, very difficult situation. It's the same for the Fed, right? We're at a point in time where we have inflation above target. It's not so easy just to focus on the banks as it was in the other cycles where we had no inflation problem to speak of. Jens, it's Tim, but you know, the crisis of confidence, you know, back to Europe, it, in 2011, 2012, I mean, the European sovereign debt crisis was something that was really about a crisis of confidence. And if we think about the velocity of the Fed move, bund rates, 10-year bund rates were minus 70 bips less than two years ago. Uh, they went up to 275. I mean, the velocity of that move is even more extreme than has gone on in the United States. And if we actually are seeing some type of, of uh, the type of volatility that we're seeing and the dollar funding stress you're talking about, um, that dollar rally, which was a wrecking ball all the way to October of last year, may get going again. And it's not been my base view, but I have to say uh, I'm very concerned by the move in the dollar in the last couple of days. And for risk assets, it's an awful backdrop. I think we have an incredible tension right between the economic data that has looked very, very strong up until very recently, right? And the Fed is looking at that. Their models is based on that. And then you have the financial side of the economy that looks like something extremely bad is happening, right? How do they balance that? It's a much tougher balance that we've seen for 30 years, right? Because inflation is above the target. In the past, they just said, oh, we don't have much inflation. Every time there's financial instability, we just cut rates, generate liquidity. Much, much harder right now. Uh, Jens, Karen, do you have any sense of how much counterparty risk some of the major U.S. banks would have to Credit Suisse? Obviously, I know, it, you know, things spread, but just isolating that. It's such a weird situation, right? Because uh, Credit Suisse has had bad headlines around its name for so long. It is not something that's popping out of the blue, uh, as some would argue the regional bank crisis in the U.S. was. So from that perspective, I think regulators knows what's going on with Credit Suisse. All the different risk managers at the big investment banks know how to manage their risk. So I think it has more to do with the question of whether it really has sovereign backstop. Is uh, the Swiss National Bank going to come in and provide liquidity or not? Or are they willing to create losses uh, on the creditors within the Credit Suisse balance sheet. If that's the case, we're going to have real credit contagion. So the Swiss National Bank has to make a big decision, and it has to be by tomorrow. By tomorrow. All right. Jens, thank you. Jens Nordvig, Exante Data. But that question, Karen, goes right to we don't know what we don't know. Right. So how concerned are you in terms of unknown or undisclosed counterparty risk uh, you know, at some of the banks that you hold? Well, it would be idiotic to dismiss it, right? Um, yeah. Uh, the, there is this credit uh, CVA which tries to ascertain credit party risk, but you can't really know. So, you know, I've made the bet that J.P. Morgan and Bank Americas of the world are, are, I mean, will they trade down? Yes. But in terms of the contagion affecting them, I think not. But it's hard to say that's no, I wouldn't say that's not possible. You know, what's fascinating is that for all the, the, the chaos we've been through in the last 15 years, and we've mm -hmm. gone through it on this show, I've had more people in the last three days ask me if their bank account deposits were safe. And, and, yeah. and, and it's extraordinary. Because if you think about the stress that we really haven't felt yet um, in banks and in credit, and yet this is where the prevailing public concern is. And I'm getting this, you know, this is from every, all the people, everyone has a all the people you'd expect Everyone to hear has from. a bank account. When you, when the financial crisis was built on things that people couldn't understand. I was on that floor when we sold, we had rolling closes. People didn't understand what was actually happening when financials were collapsing. Now people understand, hey, I have a bank account. Is it going to be there tomorrow? Yep. Tangible.
All right, coming up, crude reality, oil taking a nosedive, falling to its lowest level since 2021. So is there a floor in sight? We're trading energy next. Plus, the bite is back. Fang stocks holding up as markets head south. So should you be sinking your teeth into this trade? We'll debate mm. that when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Crude prices tumbling today to their lowest level since December 2021. The pullback sending energy stocks sharply lower with the OIH ETF putting in its worst day since September. And it wasn't just oil stocks. Resource names from Alcoa to Freeport, Mac, Miranda, Cleveland Cliffs sinking today. Guy, what would you make of this? Yeah, well, not good because, as you know, one of the O's is oil services for me. And that got bludgeoned today. Um, Look, it seems as though the market is saying global economies are slowing down. Energy's got to be a, um, obviously, it's going to feel some pain. That happened in the underlying commodity. And in terms of the equities, they're selling first, asking questions later. I don't think the energy trade is over. That's clearly wrong today. Um, I still think there's a supply-demand imbalance. And I still think these companies are extraordinarily well run. And probably, uh, in terms of balance sheets, the best they've ever been. But today's not the day to be talking that side of the book. And as someone that's also been very bullish on the energy sector, I think some of those dynamics stay very much the same. I think you have to think about uh, what's the dollar done. So every 1% move in the dollar is a 3% move in the oil price, or so we've seen over the years. So if you think about the move we've had in the dollar, but it's not just the dollar move. Um, and, and I've been getting some data from, from you know, people like uh, UBS, and I see some of this from, from Bank of America. CTAs, uh, commodity trading accounts, have been massive sellers of commodities over the last couple of days. Look at the resource stocks. Look at steel stocks down 10 percent across the board today. Some of this has been a group trade. Some of this has been repositioning. Um, I, I guess I would just say this on the price of crude. Um, do we all think universally that there's going to be a, a deep recession? Because because if you do, then crude is doing what it's doing on the demand side. But um, that's not anybody's base case, or at least the people that we talk to. Um, and I know Steve's been certainly cautious on the price of oil. And I, I, I think there's a lot of things that play into it. But right now, this is not a demand story. We're close to 65, which is your target. Yeah, yeah but, you know, it is, I think, short term. It goes back to where we started the show. I think there's a lot of things that are going on. People are forced to sell what they have, not, not what they want to sell. But also, it, it might be supply-demand right now. We heard from the Saudis that on a daily basis, we are 300,000 barrels oversupplied. Russia still putting, putting output. So if there is going to be a recession... It, that all adds to this. How deep is that recession going to be? China coming back online wasn't as bullish as everyone thought for these markets. So I think you could see the market either stabilize here 
Or if it doesn't, then, then we take another leg lower. All right. Meantime, the volatility index up nearly 15 percent at one point today, nearly topping 30, but closing well off its highs. The index has been on a big run over the past week. One options trader is betting that this heavy turbulence might be about to break. Brian Sutland joins us with the action. Brian. Yeah, and the turbulence people are looking at where can I sell some option premium, that being in the credit markets, high yield specifically. When we saw HYG, we saw lots of activity, daily activity, two times as much as average daily volume in HYG. And so what happened? We saw a big seller, 62,000 April 72 puts were sold at 95 cents. So that trader basically is willing to take stock, take HYG in almost a half a billion dollars if HYG were to drop below 72. So that's certainly a bet that maybe some of this volatility cools off and take in some option premium and bet that the downside is somewhat near. We saw spikes, which tracks volatility on SPY, actually close lower than it did two days ago. So that maybe is a little reversal in some of all this volatility that's occurring that maybe we're starting to get this washout bottom that might occur. And that's why some traders are stepping in and selling options right now. All right, Brian, thanks. Brian Stetland, for more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. A lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Chomping at the bit. Fang stocks biting back amid the rest of the market's volatility this week. Is this the ultimate flight to quality? That's next. Plus, don't try to be a hero. That's the warning from the big short trader, Steve Eisman, who he says is most at risk in this rising rate environment. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big tech outperforming the broader market today, holding up over the past week, in fact. Alphabet, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple all in the green, and maybe for good reason. During these volatile times, these companies are all cash-rich, with 41 to $113 billion in cash on their balance sheets. So is this the ultimate flight to quality? I will go to Karen on this, because mm -hmm. flight to FANG... The crack staff at Englewood Cliffs are very clever. They come up with a lot, a lot they of clever things. They are crack things. staff. Flight they to are. Fang was Karen. Okay. Well, it's not Isn't bad. Isn't that Mang, by the way? I just want to... Flight I mean, with the... Mang. Oh, with the Microsoft. Meta. Yeah, we're not... The, oh, where's oh, our oh, Meta. True, we're it's not, Mang. Sorry. Mang. Right. Mang. Flight right. Mang. Well, it is interesting. I mean, kudos to Dan, who was saying that actually mm -hmm. the Fang universe is a good place to be for this reason of relative stability and also relative valuation Right. I mean, you still have a lot of uh, high flyers in terms of multiples, even though they've come down a lot. But this universe is uh, still attractive, I think. Apple being well, Microsoft expensive, too. But 
Yeah. yeah. Well, Mang has outperformed the S&P by 11.5% in the last 47 sessions. So if you, you know, and, and if you look at the charts, and we talked about this Golden Cross, and we talked about the dynamics that at least are very bullish relative to the market, what's going on with Qs. Remember, they were relative underperformers from November of last year through really the end of 22. They've been outperforming all year. I, I would just get back to, um, we haven't seen any real earnings warnings out of Apple. I mean, I realize it's a cash-rich story. I realize it's the Bank of Cupertino as one of you very smart people coined earlier today. But it's just, to me, it's a it's a dynamic that I, I think still has not been priced in. So I see the outperformance. Uh, semis have been even more impressive on some level because, again, these are companies that at least are thriving in a lower rate environment mm-hmm. and, and in a longer duration environment. Well, especially when you, when you take into consideration what Foxconn said about this year in consumer electronics demand guy, I mean, I would think that that would be an immediate, you know, finger pointing at Apple saying, you know, maybe there is some softness yet to be seen. Yeah, and it's amazing that we haven't heard that yet. And I, I've, always, I've thought for a while now it's a foregone conclusion, but with each passing day, maybe it's sort of, that gets put in a rearview mirror. But to me, it's a classic. This Karen started off by saying, and Dan mentioned it the last time he was on, you know, in uncertain times, there will be a flight to perceived quality in the form of these names, which again, in terms of balance sheets and those types of things, I would say are as good as any companies in the world. But it just comes down to at what point do valuations become a problem. For some of these stocks, I think valuations are getting to be a bit of a problem. I wouldn't say Google necessarily. I don't think Amazon either. But, you know, Apple's probably getting a little long in the tooth. And as you mentioned a number of times, you know, Microsoft has gotten itself from being relatively cheap to relatively expensive. Well, it's headed to the expensive side of the ledger as we speak. Coming up, talk about a return on investment. Goldman Sachs eyeing a big payday from its deal with Silicon Valley Bank. Why the hero's attempts uh, could mean millions for the firm. And speaking of heroes, our next guest says, don't try to be one. Steve Eisman of the Big Short fame will join us next to weigh in on rates, banks, and the market volatility. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. Stocks closing well off the lows of the day. The Dow falling 280 points. The S&P down more than a half a percent. The Nasdaq actually closing out in the green as investors flock to technology. But shares of Goldman Sachs, they were down 3 percent. The company is reportedly set to make $100 million in fees from services it provided to Silicon Valley Bank. Goldman bought more than $21 billion of bonds held by SVB and also tried to pull off a last-minute capital raise for the bank. Guy, does this strike you as, uh, I don't know, fishy, something yeah. wrong here, well, something not, doesn't smell I, right? I wouldn't say, yeah, well, none of those, yes, I mean, it's the optics are obviously horrible, but if you think about it, I mean, that's what these institutions do uh, for a living, and people will find it unsavory, I'm sure, and in retrospect, I'm pretty certain they probably rue the day that this entire thing happened, but... You know, that's what that's what investment banking does. So we can hate it, love it. Um, but, you know, they're just trying to do the businesses that they've been tasked to do. Yep. All right. Meantime, our next guest is known for calling and profiting from the housing crisis. And when it comes to the latest upheaval on Wall Street, big short investor Steve Eisman is telling investors, don't be a hero. Steve Eisman is a port senior portfolio manager at Newberger Berman. He joins us here on set. Steve, welcome back to Fast Money. It's great to have you on <laughs> a, a day like today. Um, I, I think, you know, you navigated past crises so well. And so the number one question here is, do you see any sort of a banking crisis unfolding here in the United States and or in Europe? Um, you know, my partners and I looked at this really carefully. You know, I would say 
Number one, the large U.S. banks are better capitalized and have less risk than they ever had in anyone's lifetime. Uh, the European banks, while they're not as well capitalized, are certainly better capitalized than they are. That isn't to say there won't be pain if Credit Suisse goes down, but it's not, it's not an 08, thankfully. So the counterparty risk in terms of transmission mechanism, that's, that doesn't exist to the extent No, it does it, exist. It does exist. It's just, I mean, people have been pulling back from Credit Suisse from a long time. I mean, if, if you hear that the company goes bankrupt, there will be losses. Um, it's not death-defying losses, but it's, it'll be a problem. It's just not, it's not going to take down the system. In terms of what we've seen in the reaction across the European bank sector, it, it's true. I mean, I guess it's, you know, everybody wants to get out and then figure out what the... What well, it's a little bit of what I'd call PTSD from right. 2008, you know, sell and ask questions later, which is not a bad strategy because the news is probably just going to get worse. You know, the news um, that Switzerland is trying to bail out the company, I mean, to, to give you a perspective, um, I remember in 2008 when everybody was trying to get bailed out, um, you know, if you looked at the U.S., the size of U.S. GDP was many multiples bigger than all the bank balance sheets combined. Uh, we looked at uh, Credit Suisse today. Credit Suisse balance sheet is 500 billion. The GDP of Switzerland is 800 billion. So could Switzerland do something? Yeah, they could do something. It's not going to be easy. Not easy at all. The other thing I would say about Switzerland, unfortunately, is they really don't have a lot of regulators. So what they actually know is not, I don't think they know a lot. That's frightening. Mm -hmm. and, and also- In terms of the numbers of, like if you look at Germany, there's, I, what I've heard is there's like 500 regulators in Deutsche Bank every day. <laughs> right. Um, I think the number of, of regulators of the Swiss bank, I could be wrong, is like 250 for the whole sector. But that statement paired with the notion that, that Credit Suisse might be too big to save is sort of a frightening well, it's frightening and it's not franking. It's uh, going to be ugly. Right. You know, Credit Suisse, uh, I'll say euphemistically, has been a problem child in the investment banking industry for as long as I can remember. And it's always had cultural issues. But, um, you know, it'll get unwound. It'll be painful. It's only going to be painful for Switzerland. You know, if, if I, I they, we heard today that they maybe want UBS to take it over. Believe me, UBS does not want to take it over. That's for sure. So I don't know how they're going to unwind it. But they probably will have to. I mean, is it possible that they could save them? Maybe. But, you know, the, the, the credit def, uh, default swaps blew out to like 800 basis points. That means you really can't fund yourselves. I heard that they were offering 6 to 7% deposit rates in, in a Asia, and people were still pulling their money. Um, and nobody will be a counterparty anymore. That's more than bad. Yeah. That's... that's really bad. So how with how Switzerland will deal this? It's anybody's guess. I'm not in the room. Yeah. So let's switch to the U.S. for a minute. So with what's happened over the last week that's been revealed and who knows what hasn't been revealed yet, do you see we're, that we're in a new era now for regional banks, for what the model will be and how to think about the whole banking structure, the whole sort of business of banking? It's not a five-minute question. <laughs> um, you know, let's see, where could I start? Let me start with, you know, and when President Trump passed that bill and raised the threshold from, I think it was 50 to 250. Um, now, I think that was bad. I think Elizabeth Warren has a real valid point about it. But I, we, looked, we looked at the stress test for last year. 
And the stress test for last year had about a line in it about rising rates. And the rest of the entire stress test was about credit. So even if Silicon Valley had been in the stress test, given what the stress test says, I don't think the regulators would have caught it. They would have passed it. And you know, the stress test is basically fighting the last battle. That battle has been won in the large banks. They're better capitalized. Their risk, even with that capital, is much narrower. You know, as Warren Buffett says, when, when the tide goes out, you see who's naked. This is a different tide. This is not a credit tide. Credit quality in the United States is really good. This is a tide of a mistake, which is a lot, some of the regional banks, especially those that have a lot of deposits above 250, bought long-term bonds at very, very low levels and have massive mark-to-market losses. That's why Silicon Valley failed. Uh, also, they failed because they had a very, very concentrated type of deposit base, which has a very big herd mentality. So it, it would be very hard to regulate. I mean, even if you apply the stress tests to a Silicon Valley, that may not have detected the interest The stress test that they had would not have detected right. their problems. Right, their problem, because nobody was looking for an interest rate risk on the balance sheet. You're just looking for credit. liquidity. And that's what, the credit, that's what the stress right. has been for the last so 10 years. It's, it's hard to think of a, you know, in, in trying to figure out whether or not you invest in regional banks, you're trying to figure out, well, what can they regulate to prevent this? This is a very specific situation of interest rate risk, which may not come up again for a long time. Well, we have it now. We have it now. And, you know, what I would say to that is, so, over the weekend, uh, we, were th we, we were thinking, okay, so let's say the government doesn't bail anybody out. So clearly JP Morgan and Bank of America benefit. And it turned out, even though they did get bailed out, JP Morgan and Bank of America benefited. So our first thought was, well, maybe we should buy JP Morgan and Bank of America. And then upon farther reflection, we were like, maybe not, because given what's just happened, all the regulations are probably going to get much more stringent, mm -hmm. making the banks much less profitable. And that's not going to be clear for many, many months. So why be a hero? Because you have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Would you say that the banking sector right now, with the uncertainty given what will happen on a regulation front, that financials are uninvestable right now? I would say, you know, we, we were looking as a team at every single bank. And I would say, given the change in the regulations, the best you can say is you don't know. And if you don't know, you shouldn't play. Wow. So then what do you do? Let's, well, say, you take, yeah. let's, say, let's say you clear out your position because you're like, you know, this is, we don't know. We don't want to play, play in this pool. What pool do you go to? Well, that's not an easy question. Well, yeah, um, but I mean, that's I mean, I, I think, I, I, okay, I think is. what's happening is we're moving from one paradigm to another paradigm. Mm -hmm. So the paradigm of the last <laughs> several years has been rates are very low, you're paid to take risk, and you're actually paid to take a lot of risk. So, you know, what did the best of the last 10 years? High growth tech stocks. And what did the best within high growth tech stocks? Super high growth revenue stocks with negative earnings. Okay, so what did the worst last year? super high growth stocks with negative earnings. Now, are people gonna go back to that? I don't think so, especially if rates stay up. Mm -hmm. So what I think is coming is Tina is dead. Number one, I think you're gonna have a much more diversified portfolio. You certainly can leave money in your money market fund because it's over 4%. I'm not sure if it's over 4% tomorrow. Not, maybe not but anymore. <laughs> it's still around four, which is fine. I think over time, you'll be able to buy some treasuries and buy some bonds.
And there are going to be a lot more themes than just tech, infrastructure, bringing the supply chain back to the United States. And um, you're going to need to manage risk a lot more than people had. So, you know, people who have, <clears throat> who's outperformed over the last 10 years? Tech investors. You know, the group is now so volatile. I think everybody should take their exposures down. Not that you should invest in tech at all, but you really should diversify more, more of your portfolio, um, take down your risk, manage your risk, tailor your portfolios to your clients. One size does not fit all. Um, and given the fact that, you know, you know my team and my, my partners and I, we go back every single day. Is there a recession? Is there not a recession? I watch your show. You've had people come on and say there is recession, and a month later they said it's not a recession. It's, um, it's a very uncertain time because we've never had the confluence of stuff that we have today. I th and I think that argues for taking less risk. Right. But, but well, Steve, uh -huh. go ahead. So if, if, if we haven't had recession yet, and the, the S&P never bottoms before a recession, in terms of market sequencing, and the fact that we've seen these credit reverberations and bubbles just start. I mean, how do you see this, this playing out, both in terms of, you know, you don't need to give us the crystal ball on no, the levels no. on the s I mean, let's talk about next week, Where are for we? example. You know, the beginning of the year, good news was good, bad news was bad. And then in February, good news was bad, bad news was good. And now let, let's talk about next week. So, I mean, there, 50 basis points is off the table. So either they're going to do 25 basis points or they're going to do nothing. So let's start with the nothing. You know, I got calls from for today that, well, because of Credit Suisse, maybe the Fed will do nothing, and that's really positive. And I, I, my, my response was, really? You're, you're rooting for a financial crisis so that the Fed won't raise rates? I mean, if the Fed doesn't raise rates, I can't, how is, I mean, maybe it'll be positive for a couple of hours or two, a couple of weeks, but the Fed won't be raising rates because it's scared. Well, if the Fed is scared, you should be scared. Mm -hmm. You know, on the other hand, if the Fed raises rates, even in the face of this by 25 basis points and does and says that we're not we still could raise more, then that's like, wait a minute, you're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. Financial conditions have really tightened, but you still have inflation. It's not clear, it's not clear either move is good. I want to go back to the ramifications of, of the regional bank fallout. You said you, you wouldn't want to play given you know, the, the uncertainty there, but does that also mean that you wouldn't short anything? And does that also mean that you're not also looking at some of the ripple effects, perhaps maybe on co commercial real estate? if they have less access to capital because of time. Well, I mean, I don't want to talk is. about individual shorts. Sure. Okay. Um, do I think the banking sector is still a short? Well, it's imploded. So, I mean, would you want to short some of the bank stocks after some of them are down 60%, 70%? I mean, got to have a lot of guts to do that. Mm -hmm. um, probably better just to mostly stay away. I mean, do I think commercial real estate, well, not commercial real estate, office real estate uh -huh. is going to be a problem. Yeah, we do. We think office real estate. But, you know, the way these things unfold, it's, it takes a long time. I think what the catalyst will be, it really depends on each company when their debt rolls over. You know, if somebody bought that building two years ago with, you know, with long-term debt at 3%, right. and let's say it's five-year paper, and in five years, it's going to roll over and it's going to be 7%. Mm -hmm. That's not good. But it really depends on each building and each company how much debt they have rolling over. Right. Steve, we've got to leave it there. A great conversation. We hope you'll come by more often. <laughs> Steve Eisman, Newberger Berman. Uh, coming up, how will the Asian markets respond to today's mayhem? We're going live to Singapore next for a full report. Fast Money is back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We're just a couple hours away from the start of trading in Asia. How can we expect today's volatility to translate into those markets? CNBC Asia's Martin Sung joins us from Singapore with the first look at the opening bell overseas. Martin. Good afternoon, Melissa and the guys. Yeah, you won't be surprised to know that we are bracing for impact again out here in Asia after losses on Wall Street, especially renewed selling in financials. The problem now, and you guys have been talking about it, Credit Suisse, of course, uh, the stock hitting a record low in trading in New York. And it's you're right, it's still a couple hours to go before most markets out here get up and running. Only New Zealand is trading right now, and it is down, as you can see, in futures are handicapping and negative start down in Sydney as well as up in Tokyo. So the question is, how how is the contagion risk from the class of SVB signature Silver Lake been playing out here in Asia? Well, as you probably know, it's been a case of everything everywhere all at once getting hit. No escape. Asian markets have been under pressure, significant pressure as well, not spared. Asian banks, though, you're probably interested to know. Well, that depends where you look. Broadly, yes, they have been under pressure. But banks in Australia, take a look, have held up pretty well. Insulated there, well-capitalized, well-regulated. It's more of a commodity story driven by China's reopening. China, of course, is Australia's biggest customer for iron ore and also other industrial metals. And what about banks in China itself? Well, they are sort of in their own ecosystem, mostly top-down policy banks fixated on shoring up the battery real estate sector there, also lending for infrastructure. And yes, SVB was the go-to foreign bank for Chinese startups. It does have a joint venture with Shanghai Pudong Bank, but minimal exposure to the U.S. parent. If anything, banks like China Merchants Bank and also ICBC uh, see opportunity and also rushing to try and fill in the gap after SVB's collapse. Now, the market and also the banks that have been hardest hit are over in Japan. Double-digit percentage losses in some cases. They haven't been hit this hard since the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, the Fukushima disaster, of course. But it's more of a rate story there. Japanese banks are sitting on a ton of U.S. treasuries, as you probably know, because rates at home have been so low. Right now, they're looking at an estimated $30 billion in unrealized losses on those bonds. And if that sounds familiar, well, it's pretty similar to the situation that SVB found itself in. Back to you guys. Martin, thanks so much. Martin Sung in Singapore for us. Uh, Guy, Dami, you know, as we sort of digest what's happening around the world and how it's reacting um, sort of thinking about what Steve Eisman just said to us, and that is if there's so much uncertainty, you kind of don't want to play in that, in that realm. Don't be a hero. And, you know, yeah. if you're going to listen to anybody, it's Steve Eisman, right? And I think one of the things we said last night is you asked if the banks were investable, and the comment was, listen, I think they're extraordinarily tradable, but right now I don't think investable at all because to your earlier point, and one that Steve, we don't know what we don't know. To, so to take sort of draw a line in the sand here and put your stake in and put your flag in, I think we're way early on that front. Was it Monday you said you were in Key Corp uh, for a trade? Are you still in that? No, I sold, it, I sold yeah. it the next day. It was supposed to be a one-day thing, sold it the next day. I, I actually added to J.P. Morgan today. I think you could trade around this volatility. Just keep everything on a short leash because we don't know what we don't know, but that is trading. And granted, this is a, a, a lot of uh, energy going into the volatility up and down. Yeah, you have a trade in First Republic. Mm -hmm. Now seeing what has transpired, how are you feeling about the trade? Okay, I mean, it's a okay. capital structure yeah. arbitrage. As long as the stock stays between 10 and 80, I think it'll be a good trade. All right, up next, your Thursday morning setup. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. As we wrap up a big day on Wall Street, we wondered in lieu of final trades, what is the first thing you're watching tomorrow morning? Guy. Scott, for me at least, has to be the ECB. You know, they promised 50 basis point hike. Is it going to be 25? Do they do nothing? Do they basically throw in the towel on the inflation front and look towards, the, I guess, the safety and security and the well-being of the banking? That, to me, is fascinating. More fascinating is to see how things trade on the back of it. Yeah, and is there a notion that if the ECB pauses or backs down, does that give cover for the Fed to do the same? Because the Fed is facing the same question, financial stability versus price stability. Tim, what are you watching? I'm watching the bond market. And again, we talk about bond yield volatility. Uh, I, I would love to see bond yield stabilize. And, and, and the others, you know, I'll take two here. No one told me I could the dollar. I mean, you got you to gotta watch the dollar. Grasso. Financials. It, it seems as though every day this week has been one day bullish, one day bearish, or one day bullish, three days bearish. And we're coming from such an elevated spot down to such a trough in the market. Now, I don't know how, lo- how low they go, but I, I think financials, that's your tell. Early in the day, if you start to see a bid to financials, it'll probably be a green day over the whole market. I know you probably watch financials every day. First I do thing when you wake up. Cause I do. Although position. Credit Suisse isn't normally one that I look at, right. but I think tomorrow, I think you know we really want to see what is the message from the Swiss government. What are they going to do? And I think that everything else, well, not everything, the ECB won't. I think they'll decide regardless of what the outcome is there, but everything else will trade off of that. I think. Do we continue to see this decline in yields that we've seen so sharply, uh, Guy? Do you think tomorrow? Yeah, well, I don't know about tomorrow necessarily, but I think overall, yes, because I think the world has figured out that the economies are slowing. Yields should be lower. We got to that 1% inversion and everything swapped on the back of it. So, yes. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money on this big market day. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.